Hi everyone, and welcome to Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. If you're a young woman, you're going to understand inherently what I say next, and you'll understand it for the truth that it is, because hyperbole it is not. It is dangerous to be a young woman today. There is a unique set of dangers that face young women, that faces every day. Now, surely, life as a woman in this country has changed in the right direction in a number of ways over the years. But at the core of the female existence is something that is drilled into us from our earliest consciousness. The concept of vigilance. In the word of Mad-Eye Moody from Harry Potter, constant vigilance. It's the little things that you begin to do. Small nuances that work your way into everyday life as a woman. When walking up the stairs at your high school, even if you had a pair of softy shorts rolled under your bottom uniform skirt, you always held down the back of your skirt with one hand, clutching your books to your hip like a baby with the other to prevent any leers from shooting up underneath you. The fact that softy shorts are as much an unspoken but expected part of your school-sanctioned uniform well, that says enough right there. When you go off to college, you learn to always walk with at least one friend at night. You always fill your solo cup yourself or you carefully watch over it if it's being filled for you. The old saying amongst roommates and sorority sisters becomes a mantra. You come together, you leave together. You might learn here the trick of holding your keys between your fingers at night as a makeshift weapon if you do find yourself in the situation of having to walk alone anywhere at night. Post-grad life, you learn other survival as a young woman tips too. You learn to keep a stoic, unmoving face whenever someone catcalls you in public. Eyes up, resting bitch face in place, forever scanning the surroundings, even surreptitiously, so nothing and no one catches you unaware. Even if you have your headphones in, there's a 50-50 chance that no music is flowing through them. All the better to hear anything afoot, my dear. You keep your distance from strangers on the street or on the subway, equal parts self-assured of your right to your own space, but also self-aware of your surroundings and ways to escape if need be. You send pictures and share locations with roommates and friends when you go out or meet someone new for a first date, always under the joking text of, just in case I wind up missing or murdered. But it's the first time that a young woman is living alone. That might be the biggest test of her constant surveillance of threat and constant vigilance towards protecting her safety. It's a balancing act for sure. Your first real taste of independence, creating a space that's all your own and shouldering a new kind of personal responsibility. There are moments where you just can't get that jar open, or otherwise the instance when you surprise even yourself at your handiness at setting up your first big piece of furniture all by yourself. There are the times when you forget that one thing you desperately needed at the grocery store, so you either MacGyver a solution without it or you drag yourself back out to the store at an ungodly hour because you've only yourself to blame and yourself to rely on in that moment. 
And so too are there the moments when you walk in the front door of your little space and sigh because it is yours and it is sacred and it is your space. No one should ever have to question if their own space is safe. Certainly, Jennifer Kessie didn't think that she would ever have to do that. She did, as the saying goes, everything right. She followed the rules. She had her sharpened instincts, her watchful eye and her wits about her. She kept herself safe until the day she wasn't. Let's get ready to get dark as hell. Cassie was the type of girl that you might see in passing and think to yourself, I want to be friends with her. She had a bright, wide smile and blue eyes that just exuded friendliness and warmth. While studying finance at the University of Central Florida, Jen, as her friends and family called her, had enjoyed a vibrant social life, complete with a small troop of Alpha Delta Pi sorority sisters. Quote, She's got the whole package. She's just one of those girls you go to for anything, said one of her friends and college roommates, Jenny Peppers. Upon graduating from UCF in 2003, it was clear that Jen hadn't just partied away her days on campus. She had graduated with honors from her finance program and she had accepted a position at Central Florida Investments Timeshares, now known as Westgate Resorts. Thanks to her analytical savvy and hard work, Jen was promoted to a finance manager within her first year at the company. She was the youngest employee to be promoted to a management position, and it was a distinct point of professional pride for her. In November 2005, Jen decided to celebrate her success in a very adult way. She bought herself a condo worth $207,000 at the property Mosaic at Millennia. It was an admittedly nice condo in Orlando by all accounts. Granny countertops, modern amenities, and a private balcony that overlooked a pond on the property. The complex was described at the time as being upscale. But in truth, the area that Mosaic was located in was only just beginning to undergo what most might call gentrification. A new shopping mall had been installed across the street from the condo complex, and combined with the efforts to renovate the entire complex, it was clear that the neighborhood was trying to create a new image for itself. Mosaic was in the middle of substantial renovations at the time that Jen bought the condo. The property had actually been an apartment complex, but it was being renovated to turn all of the apartments into more modern luxury condos that sat on the edge of a large pond and a wooded area that took up even more space behind the condos themselves. At the time Jen moved into unit 2226 in building 22 on the second floor, it was reported that only half of the complex had been constructed and the other half of the available condos were still being updated. Drew Kessie, Jen's father, later described the complex as, quote, a literal construction zone. 
with so much work still going on, it wasn't necessarily surprising that the complex was barely at half of its tenant capacity. It was reported that only about 250 of the 500 or so units were occupied at the time that Jen lived there. When it came to Jen's floor specifically, there was only one other unit that someone was living in. Mosaic marketed itself in the vein of being upscale and modern, but that might not have been actually the case upon closer inspection. Though behind the units was a densely wooded area adjacent to the pond, only the front half of the complex had any sort of gating system in order to provide residents at least an appearance of privacy. However, that gating system was rarely used at the time that Jen became a resident. Due to all of the construction that was going on, it was said that most gates simply remained unlocked, if not fully open, because of how frequently so many people were coming and going throughout the property. And for such a seemingly modern complex, there weren't any security cameras to speak of or even a security guard on site, something that contradicted the concept of safety and privacy that Mosaic was trying to market for its residents. Another disquieting detail that later became public was that, with so many of the units remaining empty during the construction, the construction workers themselves had allegedly been given permission to stay in the unoccupied units for extended periods of time. The construction workers were a point of contention for Jen, despite all of the things that she liked about her new home. Simply put, Jen was uncomfortable with their presence. She had spoken to her parents and a number of friends about how several of the men would catcall her, whistle at her, and otherwise make her feel unsafe in her own living area whenever they saw her. It's unclear if Jen ever actually reported the behavior to the complex management, despite her parents encouraging her to do so. Because of these incidents, Jen started carrying pepper spray with her, even just to walk to and from her car. If there is one thing that could be said about Jen is that she was both incredibly responsible and incredibly safety conscious. For years, Joyce and Drew, her parents, had instructed both Jen and her younger brother, Logan, about the importance of being vigilant and being aware of their surroundings. The Kessie parents had been robbed at gunpoint when they were living in New Jersey years prior, and it was an experience that long impacted them, as well as their children. Jen's adherence to personal safety might have been ramped up because of her discomfort with the construction workers, but Jen's responsible nature was through and through. She had a number of rules and practices that she abided by when it came to her home, like her routine of placing a chair underneath her door handle each night, and including the fact that she refused to let anyone, especially maintenance workers, into her condo when she wasn't there. A well-known anecdote from this case is how Jen, when small updates or fixes need to be made to her unit, would always arrange to be present whenever a maintenance worker had to stop by. She would drive home from work, usually on her lunch break, and she would stand in the open doorway of her unit. And she would always have someone, her mother, her father, her boyfriend, someone was always on the phone with her while she waited for the workers to finish. Now, some might be saying, Jen has a boyfriend, so why didn't she just stay with him or live with him if she was this unnerved? 
That's a question that was at the heart of the relationship that she had with her boyfriend of one year, British soccer player Rob Allen. Jen and Rob had met while out in downtown Orlando one night, finding themselves at a tiki bar with their respective groups of friends. The two hit it off, despite Rob being a handful of years older than Jen and having just gone through a divorce, and the fact that he lived in Fort Lauderdale, not Orlando. That's about a three-hour drive, getting from Orlando to Fort Lauderdale. They started dating regardless, taking turns to visit each other on the weekends, though that distance was a bit of a point of contention for both of them. Neither Jen nor Rob necessarily wanted to move to the other's location or give up their job that they liked so much, so the discussion about the topic was warranted to lead to small arguments whenever it did come up. Despite the distance, though, the two were said to be very happy together, and they made for a good-looking couple. And it was with Rob, on a weekend getaway, that Jen spent the last few days of her known whereabouts. After work on Wednesday, January 18th, 2006, Jen drove from Orlando out to Rob's place in Fort Lauderdale. The two had made plans to have a long weekend of sorts for themselves and had arranged to spend the weekend in St. Croix of the U.S. Virgin Islands. The next day, Thursday the 19th, they hopped on a sub-three-hour flight to St. Croix. While they were in St. Croix, Rob had arranged for them to stay at a family friend's house, and during their time on the island, Jen met some of his longtime friends for the very first time. The two spent the weekend lounging by the water, enjoying the warm weather, and overall having a relaxing time by all accounts. However, the relaxation came to a bit of an early halt on Sunday, January 22nd, when Jen and Rob's return flight to Florida was inexplicably canceled. Jen had to be at work the next day, so she and Rob were scrambling to find a way back to the States. And they did, through a flight into Miami. A friend of Rob's agreed to pick them up at the Miami airport and drive them the 40 minutes back to Rob's apartment. At this point, Jen decided that it didn't make sense and wasn't the safest to drive the three hours back to Orlando. So she spent the night at Rob's. The next day, Monday, January 23rd, Jen woke up at around 6 a.m. and drove her black Chevy Malibu straight to her office in OKE. Rob had filled her gas tank for her, so she didn't even need to stop for gas on the way into work. While making the three-hour drive north, she called her mom and filled her in on her weekend getaway. By 9 a.m., she had arrived at her office, and again, by all accounts from her coworkers, she had a normal day in the office peppered by comments from Jen about how much fun that she'd had in St. Croix and what a great mini-vacation that it had been. Truly, nothing out of the ordinary was said to have taken place during the day otherwise. At 6 p.m., she popped into John Wilman's office, who was her boss, and said goodnight, checking out for the day. By 6.15, her Malibu's transponder registered that she had driven her usual route back to the Mosaic, which was a roughly 12-minute drive. At 6.30 p.m., Jen was back on the phone, this time with her dad. She filled him in on her trip, and she also spoke with her 21-year-old brother, Logan. While Jen had been off in St. Croix, Logan had actually gotten permission from her to stay at her condo with one of his friends, Travis Bergignon, who is like another little brother to Jen. Though Logan and Travis were staying at her apartment, they also had someone else hanging out with them, Matt, 
Jen's ex-boyfriend. Little bit odd having one's ex at one's apartment when one isn't there. Matt lived in Orlando, though, so he didn't actually stay over at Jen's. He simply hung out with the guys while they were there. It seems that Logan and Matt had stayed friends even in spite of Jen breaking up with Matt. Allegedly, Matt hadn't taken the breakup very well at all, and he had tried to get back together with her for a while after she broke up with him. Obviously, that didn't pan out, given that Jen had been dating Rob for over a year by January 2006. It's unclear if Jen knew that Matt was going to be hanging out with Logan and Travis at her apartment, though. And honestly, I can't imagine being all that thrilled with the concept if I had been Jen in this situation. While Jen was on the phone with her dad and Logan, something was brought to her attention. In the last 15 years, it's gotten a little convoluted how this information was shared with Jen, but she became aware that Travis had accidentally left his new work cell phone at her condo. Some news outlets claim that Logan passed the message on to Jen on Travis's behalf, but other outlets have reported that Travis himself said that he spoke with Jen that Monday night about getting his phone back as soon as possible. Apparently, Jen might have already found the phone if and when she spoke with Travis because a local Orlando news outlet, WFTV, said that she had told Travis, quote, he had missed several calls on his cell. However, Jen found out about Travis's phone, what is certain is that she agreed to send it back to him. This, however, is where another detail becomes convoluted. The Kessie family is adamant that Jen had planned to ship out the cell phone the next day from work since they had a UPS facility on campus. But with how the events of this case panned out, some have questioned over the years how literally Jen meant it when she told Travis that she would, quote, overnight the phone to him. Given what we know about Jen's habits and her penchant for personal safety, most believe that she would not have gone out to find a UPS or FedEx drop box after arriving home from work. She was a homebody through and through and loved to throw her sweats on as soon as she got in. Some, though, question if she didn't decide to just help out her brother's friend and zip off to mail it in that same night. What we do know about Jen's night is this. She brought her luggage from her trip back into her unit, and she also grabbed the mail that had been waiting for her at the front desk. Both her still relatively packed luggage and her mail were found in her condo. Once she was back inside, her parents believed that she changed into her standard loungewear of sweats for the night, and then she hopped on the phone. Allegedly, Jen's cell phone service was said to be awful inside her condo, and it was only serviceable out on her balcony. So her parents believed that she must have been using her landline when she began making calls that night. The Orlando Police Department has never actually released to the public what all activity Jenna had on her phone that night, including any confirmed timestamps or any of the other details of the records, which is actually just one of the reasons why it's so unclear if she did speak directly to Travis that night. Her best friend from childhood, Lauren McCarthy, she received a call from Jen that night, though. During their conversation, which Lauren shared with the TV show Disappeared, she claims that she and Jen caught up about their lives, that Jen told her all about the weekend trip to St. Croix, and that Jen shared the difficulties she and Rob were having in regards to their three-hour distance from each other. In Lauren's words, 
She said Jen was, quote, feeling the distance between the two of them even more than usual. After speaking with Lauren, Jen followed her standard routine and used her landline to call Rob at 9.57 p.m. In the course of their conversation, Jen told Rob that she was already in bed since she was tired from her longer-than-usual day. They allegedly had a brief spat while on the phone, one that most believe centered around the problems with the physical distance between them and neither of them being willing to move for the other. While on the phone, there was allegedly a knock on Jen's front door. She allegedly got up from bed, looked out the peephole, and told Rob that the person at the door was her upstairs neighbor, but she didn't answer the door. Some reports, however, claim that the knock didn't occur that night, though, and that it actually took place several days beforehand while she was on the phone with a girlfriend. Regardless, it's something of note that comes up often in this case. Knock or no knock, after they spoke for a while, Jen and Rob said their goodbyes and hung up. It would be the last known communication that Jen would have with anyone. Jen typically arrived at her office around 8 a.m. most days, usually leaving her condo around 7.30 or 7.45. While getting ready during the morning, she and Rob had gone into the routine of calling each other to start the day off. Speaking to Jane Velez Mitchell on February 6th, 2006, Rob shared, quote, Jennifer always woke up before me. She had to go to work before I did. So she, every day, would either call me just to say good morning, have a great day, or just text me to wish me, you know, have a great day, love you, that type of thing. Except on that Tuesday morning, January 24th, 2006, that call, that text, never came. Rob thought it was a little strange, maybe wondering if their argument the night before had carried over into the next day. He was running late himself, though, so he couldn't really give it that much thought to the matter. On his way into his own job, he placed a call to Jen, and it went straight to voicemail. Still feeling odd about the lack of communication, but chalking it up to Jen playing catch-up after their vacation, he simply left her a message and went on with his morning. After his 9 a.m. meeting, he still couldn't shake the unsettled feeling that he had, so he called Jen a second time. Again, no answer from Jen other than the call immediately going to her voicemail. So he left a second message. While Rob had a meeting at 9 a.m., Jen had one, and an important one at that, scheduled for 11 a.m. Except 11 a.m. came and went without any sign of Jen. Her coworkers thought that this wasn't just odd, it was alarming. Jen was known to be so communicative, so reliable, even letting her boss know if she was going to be five minutes late to something, that everyone knew this was extremely unlike Jen to simply not show, and much less not call to tell someone if something had come up. Her colleagues checked their own schedules and internal calendars, and it must have been with a feeling of dread that they realized that Jen wasn't supposed to be working off the property that day, that she'd RSVP'd to the 11 a.m. meeting. She truly was supposed to be in the office. Her coworkers and manager sent a few calls to her cell phone, all to no avail as they too only reached her voicemail, just like Rob had. 
With how unprecedented this behavior was from Jen, her boss, John Wilman, did the only thing that he could think to do. He called Jen's parents, her emergency contact. Like everyone else had done that morning, Joyce and Drew called Jen's cell phone, and their calls also went straight to voicemail, which was a first in their memories. Jen always picked up their calls. Joyce and Drew then called Rob, who shared that he too hadn't heard from Jen all morning. By this point, it was clear that Jen's phone was turned off. And that's when the Kessies knew that something was wrong. The Kessies lived in Tampa at the time, about two hours away from Orlando. So after realizing that something must have happened to their daughter, they began to make the drive out east to her condo. They took two separate cars, one with Joyce and Drew, and a second one being driven by Logan, along with his friend Travis. While driving, Drew called the manager of the Mosaic property and alerted them as to what all was going on. They asked the manager to use a master key to enter her apartment and see if Jen was there. After knocking on her door to no answer, the manager used the key to open the locked door, walked into the unit, and found nothing. Everything seemed as normal as it could have been. On the drive, the Kessies called some of Jen's other friends, as well as local hospitals. Again, all to no avail. None of Jen's friends had heard from her that morning, and none of the local hospitals could report a woman by her name or description being brought in that morning. It must have been a hellish, anxiety-riddled drive. The Kessie caravan arrived at Jen's condo around 3.15, and Rob joined them, having made the drive out from Orlando himself. When the group arrived, they saw right away that Jen's car was nowhere to be seen. They then entered the condo, which, sidebar, really makes me want to scream because contamination, evidence, like I get it. But this was the scene that greeted them. Quote, all of her morning work routine looked like it had been normal. The clothes left on Jen's unmade bed were two skirts and a pair of work pants. The clothes that she wore to work on Monday were still laying neatly on the back of a chair in the bedroom. Joyce said that the bed wasn't made. For all appearances, the condo looked just like it always did with nothing out of the norm. Jen's mom did notice that Jen's new alligator heels from Nine West were missing. Her luggage from the St. Croix trip was still in the suitcase, the lights to the unit were off, and it looked as though Jen had begun to sort her mail, since some of the flyers and adverts were in the trash. Her makeup, hair dryer, and some clothes were left on the bathroom floor. The shower looked like it had recently been used since a damp towel was found in her laundry room, and there was water still gathered on the shower floor, indicating that Jen had taken a shower that morning, as she was known to do. Jen's pepper spray, it should be noted, was found on the counter pepper spray that she was known to carry with her at all times. What they didn't find, though, was Jen. Jen wasn't the only thing missing from her condo. Her purse, which held her wallet and driver's license, was also missing. Her iPod, car keys, unit keys, and her work briefcase weren't in the condo either. These were all things that she regularly carried with her or otherwise used during the work week. 
Strangely enough, Travis's forgotten cell phone was also nowhere to be found. The scene at Jen's unit seemed to suggest that she had gotten ready for the day ahead of her that morning, prepared to go to work, and vanished before 11 a.m. Or had she? When the Kessies and Travis arrived at Jen's condo and quickly took stock of the scene, Drew and Joyce almost immediately then called the Orlando Police Department. Credit where credit is due, at least when it comes to the people in Jen's life. From her coworkers and boss sounding the alarm, to her family for immediately making the drive out to Orlando, and the general quickness with which everyone took the situation seriously. The speed with which Jen's loved ones realized something was wrong no doubt helped get her case into the police's hands as quickly as it did. The police, however, held to that infuriating standard that we see so often in these types of cases. Because Jen was 24, she was an adult, and well within her rights to take off on her own if she had wanted to. The police even positive that Jen may have run off still upset about the argument that she had had with Rob the night before. The Kessies didn't accept that answer, though. And by 5 p.m. that night, the family and Jen's friends were standing at busy intersections of the area, and they had already had flyers with Jen's face and information plastered across them, scattering her image across the city. The Kessies had set up a command center of sorts within Jen's condo unit, and they were dispatching flyers to local businesses, restaurants, and anywhere else that they thought they could gain attention for Jen's bizarre disappearance. It was around 7 p.m. that night, the Orlando Police Department reneged on their original dismissal of Jen's case, and they entered the fray themselves as they accepted the filed missing persons report and released a bolo for her black Chevy Malibu. The next two days were spent with volunteers, including tons of Jen's sorority sisters, conducting searches of local areas, handing out more flyers, and saturating the local news scene. Detectives began conducting their own interviews and searches, though they never performed an official search of Jen's condo. They claimed that, since the family had set up shop there, any useful evidence would have been contaminated and thus inadmissible. Their initial belief was that Jen must have left the condo sometime on the morning of the 24th, what with all the signs that pointed to that conclusion. Police at the time believed that somewhere between the breezeway of her condo and her car, perhaps even while she was getting into her car, Jen had been abducted. But who would abduct Jen? Confident, funny, well-liked Jen. Why would someone do this? How could someone do this? And the question on everyone's mind at the time, how is someone able to do this, to so completely remove someone from their life so easily? It would take two days after Jen was reported missing for the first clue to be found in her case. Except it's hard to say if the discovery of her car was as much of a clue or just an added conundrum to the case. An eagle-eyed resident of the Huntington-on-Green apartment complex was the one who recognized the unfamiliar black Chevy Malibu that had been parked at the neighboring complex of Jen's own condo property. Huntington-on-the-Green is located about 1.2 miles down the street from Mosaic, and with the prominence that Jen's case had been given on local news, when this apartment resident's 
saw the same car on the news related to Jen's case, they called the tip-in at 8.10 a.m. on January 26th. They told police that the car had arrived sometime on the 24th and had been sitting there ever since, the same day that Jen was reported missing. As soon as police confirmed that the car was Jen's, they began taking evidence from it into account. The first piece of evidence was something that wasn't there, the keys. The car was found locked when police arrived at Huntington on the Green, so the person who had left the car there had also taken the keys with them. Law enforcement found various odds and ends in the car, including two pairs of flip-flops, Jen's mail key, a pair of sunglasses, and her car charger for her phone. A DVD player was also carefully buckled into the back seat, something that Rob had given her as a gift, and something that caught police's eye. If this had been a robbery attempt, wouldn't the DVD player be long gone? Or had the perpetrator not cared about the DVD player, since it wasn't about robbery at all, and instead the matter was about Jen? Police noticed that the driver's seat had been pushed all the way back as well, as if whoever had driven the car needed more leg room. Jen was five foot eight inches, but her parents remarked that the seat was much too pushed back, even for her frame. The only forensic evidence that was collected from the scene was a latent DNA print and a small sample of fibers. The details of what exactly the fibers were, or more information about the DNA print, none of that has ever been made public. When the police were notified about the presence of the car, they not only dispatched officers to begin collecting evidence, but an Orange County Sheriff's Office bloodhound by the name of Bo was also sent out to the scene. According to the Orlando Sentinel, Bo, quote, took a sniff of the driver's seat and pulled handler Sergeant Jeff Brown at a loping pace for a mile. The scent led straight to the front door of Kessie's home in Mosaic at Millennia, an upscale gated and fenced condominium complex with 24-hour security on Americana Boulevard. The trail bypassed the complex's only entrance and led to a stretch of fence separating the public sidewalk from its public private grounds. Once the six-year-old bloodhound entered the grounds, the dog picked up the scent inside the fence and went directly to a staircase, leading to Kessie's second floor condominium. Plainly put, whoever had been driving Jen's car and abandoned it at Huntington on the Green, they had gone back to Mosaic, back to the condo where Jen lived. Who had parked Jen's car barely a mile away from her own condo? And why had they gone back to Mosaic? And how had they done it all somehow within that first hour that Jen was first reported missing? Though there were questions circulating about the car and the evidence that it could provide, police were bound and determined to get their hands on another piece of evidence, namely surveillance tapes. Unlike Mosaic and unlike what was reported in the Orlando Sentinel, Huntington on the Green actually did have surveillance cameras installed on the property, and the videos had captured the person driving Jen's car, as well as that same person walking away from the complex. The problem was, no one could get a clear shot of the person of interest's face. 
not even the FBI or NASA, when they were approached to help clarify and enhance the images. From the video surveillance, the car arrives at Huntington on the Green by noon on the 24th, just about an hour after the alarms first started to be raised that Jen was missing. You can see the car pull into the parking space and the POI then sits in the car for roughly 32 seconds. Some have speculated over the years that the driver, given that there was almost no forensic evidence discovered in the car, may have been wiping down any incriminating evidence from spots that they had touched. Just one last wipe down before exiting the car. And that's when the POI exited the car. That's what makes this already inexplicable case all the more frustrating. Because somehow, some way, despite having this person literally on camera, there has never been a clear shot of their face. The precise way that the POI walked was in such a way that a metal gate and its post obscured their face almost perfectly with every step as if the posts aligned in just that specific way, meant to conceal their identity. Like I said, the FBI and NASA couldn't even enhance the images themselves enough to get a clear picture of the person's face. And the suspect has since been called, quote, the luckiest person of interest ever. From what we can see of the POI, they're wearing some sort of white or light colored clothing. Their shoes are black and they appear large. They appear to have dark hair that may or may not be tied back in some way. Initially, the FBI stated that the person moves between five foot three and five foot five, but that has since been discredited. The video is so nondescript, you can't even confidently tell if the person is a male or a female. Every single step the POI took as they walked past that gate protected their identity in truly one of the most insane coincidences out there in the true crime realm. The big break the Orlando police and the Cassies had hoped that they'd stumbled upon gave them none of the leads that they had been hoping for. Everyone instead returned to the drawing board. On February 11th, a failed SWAT raid had not turned up an alive Jennifer as the police had been led to believe. Patrol officers had been hearing rumors on the street that Jennifer was alive and being held at one of two boarding houses on 40th Street, an area just off of Rio Grande Avenue in Orlando that was known for being home to rather sketchy suspect behavior. Sergeant Richard Ring of OPD spoke to the tipster himself and two other detectives also met with the caller in person. They believed that the caller was so credible they believed it was the information that they'd been waiting for. Four hours after speaking with the tipster, the boarding house that the caller believed Jen was being held at was raided. The Orange County SWAT team raided room after room at the boarding house looking for Jen or any sign that she had been there. Except Jen wasn't there. She never had been. The tipster had been mistaken, thinking the woman that was supposed to be there was Jen, but it was, in fact, a local sex worker who happened to be named Jennifer as well. On February 13th, just over two weeks after Jennifer had last been heard from and two days after the publicly failed raid, the large scale searches were put to a stop. 
That didn't stop Jen's family and other loved ones, though. There were too many odd instances, too many strange details that they couldn't shake, that simply didn't make sense in this case that already made next to no sense. One of the biggest issues was the matter of Jen's cell phone, and Travis has forgotten one as well. Though all of the calls from the 26th went straight to Jen's voicemail, when police became involved, they couldn't even ping the location of Jen's phone, which suggested to them that someone had removed the battery and thus removed the capability to track the phone at all. Jen's phone, it should be noted, has never actually been found. Neither has Travis's either. It was not found among the items discovered at Jen's apartment, and it never arrived in the mail, leading most to believe that his phone must have been on Jen's person whenever she was abducted. But if it was, then did the abductor discover the phone and treat it as they had done Jen's, removing the battery and turning it off? Had Jen dropped it somewhere along the way if she was accosted? Despite all anecdotal evidence to her behaviors, had she tried to make a late night run to a UPS or FedEx despite her office having a mail delivery service on the property? What happened to both of the phones? And who would have been devious enough to realize that they had to remove the battery and power down the phones to keep their location from being discovered? What does this say exactly about the perpetrator or perpetrators? As the days turned into weeks of searching and investigating, something continuously popped back up for the Kessie family. Jen's discomfort with the workers who had harassed her during her time at Mosaic. Jen had spoken with her parents about the leers, the yells, the stares that she received frequently enough from the men that she'd been invited to report it to the property manager. One construction worker was later arrested for statutory rape, and two others were implicated in the rape of a local preteen girl like leading credence to the idea that perhaps Jen had been right to be uneasy about the men coming and going throughout her condo complex. When younger brother Logan approached some of the workers in the subsequent days, asking if they knew what had happened to his sister, asking if they knew anything at all, anyone he approached either ignored him or they simply refused to engage with his questions. It didn't sit well with the family, knowing all of this. It isn't a stretch of the imagination or necessarily a stretch of human nature to know that the Kessie family immediately wanted the construction workers investigated. There were problems with that though, namely that a large portion of the construction workers simply vanished themselves soon after Jen was reported missing. For those familiar with this case, it's common knowledge that a hefty portion of the men working on the renovations, construction, and maintenance operations at the Mosaic, they'd actually been working without documentation. Online chatter has suggested over the years that the undocumented workers were being paid under the table and that they were living or squatting in the empty units. That was being allowed as part of the, as part of the employment deal by the large local contractor who had taken on the project with Mosaic. However, as soon as police and other investigators began popping up at Mosaic, almost everyone on the property and involved with the case noticed that the construction workers no longer popped up themselves. Many had left, gone without a word or a trace, and simply melted into thin air without any way to contact them. 
it only recently came out that the Orlando police never interviewed any of the remaining construction workers at Mosaic. They claimed the language barrier was too great and that there was no Spanish-speaking translator in the entire Orlando area that could have assisted them. I will just let that fact sit for a second, really ruminate on that one for you. Other individuals were named as possible suspects outside of the construction workers. Some credible, some incredulous. People obviously assumed, as one does at the beginning of a crime, that the boyfriend did it. However, Rob Allen and the immediate members of the Kessie family, Joyce, Drew, Logan, and even Travis, they've been cleared of suspicion by law enforcement for any involvement with Jen's disappearance. More specifically in that same vein, though, some posited the theory that the ex-boyfriend, Matt, who had been at her condo with Logan and Travis during the weekend, must have had something to do with Jen's disappearance, especially because he was drunk at a bar across the street from Jen's condo the last night anyone heard from her. However, though some wanted to paint him as the heartbroken ex, he wasn't as heartbroken as he had first been when Jen broke up with him. By 2006, he had moved on and he was happily dating another woman, one that he eventually went on to marry and thus removed most online suspicion that he had anything to do with Jen's disappearance. In one of the stranger incidents of possible suspects, one woman approached Joyce in a grocery store soon after Jen disappeared, crying and claiming that she was the person seen on the video. After a brief investigation, however, law enforcement revealed that the woman was lying and that she had falsely implicated herself in a bizarre bid to get her drug-using boyfriend arrested and out of her house. There was a local apartment rental agent who claimed that Jennifer had ducked into her office about 10 days before she disappeared and appeared to be nervous, unsettled, trying to hide from someone outside. The same woman later claimed that she thought she saw Jen again on the 23rd, when a loud scream woke her up around 10.30 p.m. or 11 p.m. at her unit at the nearby Northbridge Apartments. She claims that she saw a woman resembling Jennifer in an altercation with a Hispanic man, whereafter a four-door black sedan later sped off, with the blonde woman having been forced inside of it. Law enforcement also learned that Jen had been on the unwelcome receiving end of romantic advances from a coworker, a supervisor, actually, named Johnny Campos. He had apparently been so frequent in his asking to take Jen on a date that she had talked to her dad about it, wondering what the best way to let him down would be. Drew apparently advised her to not engage in anything that could be misconstrued as a date, and that getting together in public, in a work setting, to explain point blank that she didn't date coworkers would be the best option. What Drew didn't know, however, was that Johnny Campos was married and had children. It's a fact that he said that he would have been more diligent in addressing while guiding Jen through the situation. Had he known? Someone else had been paying attention to all of the attention that Johnny Campos was paying to Jen, though. Another co-worker. This second co-worker goes by the pseudonym Adam Frank, but some diligent online digging will 
reveal his real name to you if you're that invested. Adam Frank alleged that Campos was friendly with Jen, but he made his attraction to her clear. Adam Frank alleged that when he learned about Jen's trip to St. Croix with Rob, he grew incensed and Campos referred to Rob as, quote, that British asshole. When Jen returned on Monday the 23rd, Campos allegedly confronted her about the trip, while Jen merely talked about how much fun that she had had and how she hadn't wanted to leave the island. What's interesting about any of the co-workers that Jen worked with is that police didn't interview people there for roughly three years, with the first interviews of CFI employees taking place in 2009. And that's just the beginning of OPD's mishandling of this case, if you ask me. In 2010, a complaint was filed against Johnny Campos by, surprise, Adam Frank. Dated January 19th, 2010, the complaint stated that the employee, known as Adam Frank, had been the subject of harassment by Johnny Campos that started after Jen disappeared. He shared an anecdote of Johnny complaining about Jen going away with Rob, while Adam Frank had asked Campos not to speak of these issues with him since he knew that Campos was a married man. Quoting directly from the complaint, quote, the employee, meaning in this case, Adam Frank, stated that when Jen did not come into work, the manager, meaning Johnny Campos, he came in very late and everyone noticed. The employee saw that throughout the week, the manager seemed very preoccupied. When they spoke about Jennifer during a trip out to CFI offices at Lake Eleanor, the manager allegedly remarked to him just days after Jen had gone missing that she, quote, must have been eaten by alligators by now. Adam Frank claimed in his statement that he didn't tell police about Campos arriving to work late because he was afraid that, quote, what happened to Jennifer would happen to him. When the content of these allegations became public, it cast Johnny Campos in a bad light, in a bad fucking way. The employee stated that it had been, quote, common knowledge that manager Campos and Jennifer had been, quote, involved, that Jennifer had taken a cruise with Rob, and that it was on a Monday that Campos arrived late to work. Sharp listeners that you are, you'll know that those details aren't true. It's been disputed by several people in Jen's life that she had any involvement with Campos, we know that she and Rob flew to St. Croix. They didn't take a cruise. Their initial return flight was canceled. And that Jen went missing on a Tuesday, not a Monday. A few other things came out that were at odds with the complaint. Johnny Campos was late to work in January 2006, except it wasn't the day that Jennifer disappeared. It was actually January 16th. And he was late because he got a traffic ticket and then ripped up the citation in front of the cop. And it wasn't just Campos who was interested in Jennifer. Oh, no. Adam Frank was interested in Jen. And he wasn't just interested in her. It's been said that he was obsessed with Jen. The guys over at Unconcluded, a podcast which is solely focused on Jenna, Jen's case, received information from a source, a source that other research contends was an employee at CFI at the time that Jen worked there, who claimed that this Adam Frank was constantly asking Jen out 
and someone who, quote, everyone at the office thought was weird, creepy, and made them feel uneasy. Rumors have since abounded that Adam Frank involved himself into various searches for Jen, that he walked up and introduced himself to the Kessies during the early days of passing out flyers. Classic CSI and criminal minds moves that scream the murderer is trying to go back to the scene of his crime or otherwise place himself in the middle of the investigation. But there are other, smaller, yet no less strange details that have emerged about this coworker, like the fact that he had two apartments in the vicinity of Jen's, including one at the Northbridge Apartments. He's also had property near Lake Eleanor, the same area that he claimed Johnny Campos made his alligator comment. That area actually was searched, and cadaver dogs indicated that a body, a dead body, had been there at some point. Adam Frank, it should be noted, was fired from CFI in 2011, allegedly in relation to the complaint that he made about Johnny Campos because it was full of lies and because his constant self-involvement with Jen's case made the upper management at CFI uneasy themselves. Curiouser and curiouser, stranger and stranger. That's about the best way to describe the Jennifer Cassidy disappearance. Oh, there were excavations done out in fields, tips called in about skeletons, a sighting of Jen Chevy allegedly driving erratically that morning of her disappearance. And the theory was even positive that perhaps Jen had been disposed of in the mosaic area itself, given that it was undergoing such extensive renovations. Even the Kessie family has acknowledged that they could believe in the possibility that Jen was a victim of human trafficking. Though they also acknowledge it's a theory low on the totem pole of the other theories that they have to contend with. The OPD were sued by the Kessie family in 2018 in order to gain access to all of the documents within the case file that were related to Jen's disappearance. The Kessies believe that police had been holding back vital information and they were seeking to get their hands on the redacted files that had never been shared. Drew, speaking to the press at the time, framed their lawsuit for the unredacted documents as such. Quote, we know how many law enforcement officials have looked at Jennifer's case and have found absolutely nothing. Now it's our turn. The Kessies won their suit and they received 14,000 documents as well as dozens of hours of video interviews. They have since hired a team of lawyers and investigators to help them comb through every document and every piece of evidence. Through the release of the case files, the Kessies learned an important piece of information, information about the state of Jen's car. The original responding officers who have since retired from the force allegedly didn't take many, if any, notes when they arrived on the afternoon of the 24th. But there were notes from the day that Jen's car was discovered. Notes about the hood of the car and the strange, quote, scrabble marks on its paint. Upon further investigation, Drew claimed that it, quote, looked like someone was thrown down on the top of the hood, arms spread out, then dragged back, almost like off the hood to the point where you can almost see fingers scribbling down the hood. Was this a key clue that someone had overpowered Jen? 
and had they done so as she was approaching her own car? What all did it mean? The update about the scratch marks on the hood in 2018 was followed by a search in Lake Fisher in the town of Gotha in 2019. The Kessie's private investigator had used their own cadaver dog in a search of the lake after receiving information from a woman who, quote, had seen something weird during the early days of Jen's disappearance. This something weird was, quote, a pickup truck pulled up to the lake and someone removed an eight-foot-long carpet, dumped it in the water, and hurriedly left. The tip was investigated by the PI and the cadaver dog, who indicated during his search that a body had been in the lake, which is what brought law enforcement into the search. Despite searching the lake with various dive teams over a number of days, nothing more substantial was recovered. All we can do now is ask ourselves, as we wait for the day where more answers become clear, what happened to Jennifer Kessie? Let's examine some of the other hashtag questions surrounding her case. Hashtag question number one. On the morning of January 24th, 2006, did Jen ever get into her car that morning? What exactly did Jen's morning look like? What did the rest of Jen's night look like on January 23rd after she hung up with Rob? Did Jen ever leave her condo of her own volition on the morning of the 24th? Did Jen walk out of the breezeway from her apartment, head to her car, and then go back up to get something, possibly explaining the scent that Bo the Bloodhound later picked up? Did she leave the complex and step out of the car to mail the phone at a drop-off box and had someone attacked her then? Was someone watching her that morning? Had someone been watching her for several mornings, several weeks perhaps, waiting for their opportunity to strike the object of their obsession? When exactly was Jen's cell phone turned off? When was Travis's cell phone turned off? Several outlets reported that there was a record of Jen's phone turning off and the battery being removed at 10.40 p.m. on the night of the 23rd. But the Kessies have since come out to say that that never happened. So what actually happened to the phone batteries? How did someone know to remove them to avoid having the phones traced? Why did the person driving Jen's car wait until noon that day to get rid of it? And at an apartment complex only a mile away? How long had the person who abandoned Jen's car been in possession of the car? Were they the perpetrator? Or had they somehow been roped into leaving the car somewhere by the person who actually abducted Jen? Was this a one-person operation? Or did multiple individuals play a role in Jen's disappearance? Why would anyone without connections to the condo complex go back to it after leaving the car at the neighboring complex? Why return to the mosaic at all? What or who exactly did Bo the Bloodhound track that day? Was he following Jennifer's scent or was he following the scent of whoever had been driving? Which leads to more questions about if it was the person who'd been driving, why did they go back to the complex and why did they go back to Jen's unit? Did the person captured on the Huff Huntington on the Green video 
know about the surveillance cameras and walk past the gate purposely? Or was it simply the luckiest chance that they could have stumbled upon that the gate so fully blocked their face? Which then begs the question, was Jen's abduction highly planned or was it a spur of the moment opportunity? Had her abduction initially been a robbery gone wrong? Or had someone always been targeting Jen purposely? Who was the person that Jen was allegedly hiding from when she hid out in the apartment rental office? Was it actually Jen that had had that strange interaction? Or was the witness simply confused? Did that woman actually witness the altercation in the Northbridge apartment parking lot? Was it Jen that she saw get forced into the car? If it was Jen, why had the abductor brought her to Northbridge Apartments? How had Jen gotten there? Had she driven there of her own accord? If so, why? Why didn't the police interview any of the available construction workers? And why did they claim that they didn't have an interpreter? Were the police kowtowing to local business, afraid to upset the big-time contractor who had hired them under the table, as some online reports have stated? Why did they let such an easy opportunity to get more insight simply slip through their hands? Why did so many similar, smaller bungles take place during this case, like the tip about Jen being held at the boarding house, except it was simply a local sex worker who had been mistaken for her? Why weren't any CFI employees interviewed for almost three years? Is there any truth to the rumors that Johnny Campos was constantly asking Jen out despite being married? Was Johnny as upset about Jen's relationship with Rob as it's been stated by some? Did he actually make the comment about Jen's body being eaten by alligators? Or is all of it an over-exaggeration by Adam Frank, the pseudonym for the coworker who complained? Why would Adam Frank make up so many bizarre lies about Johnny Campos? Was he actually ever being harassed by Campos? Or was he trying to deflect attention onto Campos and away from himself? Was Adam Frank as, quote, creepy and weird as sources have stated? Was he himself the one obsessed with Jen? Was Jen aware of his obsession if he was? What are the odds that Adam Frank owned two properties right near Jen's and that he owned property near Lake Eleanor where Campos allegedly made the alligator comment? What are the odds that Adam Frank had a cousin allegedly either working for or working for Mosaic and squatting in one of the empty units during this time. Was Adam Frank stalking Jen? Or was someone from Mosaic responsible for her disappearance? Had one of the men who had upset Jen before because of their catcalling taken their behavior into more violent territory? If it was a construction worker who abducted Jen, were they one of the ones who seemingly left town after the disappearance was made public? And will they ever be found? Since it's been 15 years, it feels reasonable to ask, is Jen's abductor or abductors, are they even still alive? Did Jen leave Mosaic on January 24th? And if she did, was it forcibly or of her own volition? Was she alive when she did so? Was Jen murdered at her condo complex or was she murdered somewhere else? 
If Jen was killed, then where is her body? How was it so thoroughly disposed of? If she was killed off-site, then how was there next to no forensic evidence in her car? Does the lack of forensic evidence suggest that Jen never got in her car that day and the relocation of her Chevy was just a distraction? If she never got in her Chevy though, then what did the scratch marks across the hood of her car suggest? How was there no forensic evidence anywhere? If Jen was attacked, how did absolutely no one see or hear anything? And if they had or did, why haven't they come forward? What happened to Jennifer Kessie on January 24th, 2006? Where in the world is she? Since 2019, there have not been any major updates, breaks, or leads that have been made public about the state of the investigation into Jen's disappearance. At the time of recording this, Sunday the 24th, today actually marks 15 years to the day since Jennifer Kessie was last seen or heard from by any of her loved ones. This case feels stunted in some regards. The passage of 15 years certainly does nothing to help the cohesion of the case, especially not when so many details have been lost to time, misreporting, made up by strange coworkers, or are simply unsubstantiated because Jen was living alone when she was abducted. The fact that investigators have narrowed the time frame of her disappearance into a 10-hour window taking place between 10 p.m. on the night of the 23rd and 8 a.m. on the morning of the 24th should feel like it gives ample opportunity to narrow that down even further. And yet those 10 hours feel like an eon when placed in the context of Jen's disappearance. The theories run rampant. The suspicions constantly swirl with the addition or subtraction of a new detail. And one question remains looming over the whole case, a question that then births a hundred more. Where is Jennifer Kessie? What happened to her? This is one of the more bizarre cases in the lexicon of true crime. On the surface, it seems almost neat, somehow tidy. A woman goes missing after experiencing unnerving behavior from people at her condo complex. Some people out there really do think that the case is as simple as that. But then you take a harder look, a more nuanced look, and you begin to peel back the layers and the details of the story. The strange incident where Jen was allegedly seen hiding out in the apartment rental office, nervous and unsettled by someone outside. The fact that Jen went to such pains to ensure her personal safety, to do everything in her power to protect herself as a young woman living alone. The weird behavior from not just one, but apparently two coworkers Two co-workers who allegedly wouldn't leave her alone. Jennifer Kessie was smart and she was vigilant. And by all accounts, she took no shit. I really do think I would have liked to have been friends with her. It's hard to believe that it's been 15 years since she was last heard from by anyone who loved her. Over the years, the turns and the twists of this case dredge deeper and weirder than most because of the simple fact that we just don't know what happened to her. 
the bizarre nature of this case lends itself to even more bizarre theories and possibilities. But at the heart of it all, the Kessie family is still missing their daughter. And Jennifer Kessie still has not been brought home. It's about time that she has. Because whatever it is that happened to Jen, it was not her fault. She did all of the right things and she deserves to come home, regardless of who or what stole her away from her family that January morning, 15 years ago. If you have any information about Jen's whereabouts, the Kessie family tip line can be reached at 941-201-4009. Thanks for listening to today's episode, an episode that is in honor of new da mother, Kate Sewell and Lil Isla Jean, the newest addition to the da crew. Welcome to the world, little one, and shout out to the newest, baddest mom on the block. If you're liking what you're hearing, please go leave a five-star review and rating for the show over on Apple Podcasts. I'll be back here next week with another hashtag question loaded story to tell you. If you're interested in joining the Dot Patreon crew, you can head on over to patreon.com slash darkasshellpodcast to see what level might be up your alley of interest. If you're not sure what level you'd like to start at, well, there's a new Patreon level and it only costs $1. You can support Da and the work that I do here for just a dollar a month and get yourself shouted out in an episode, as well as have access to exclusive content on the Patreon. Spoiler alert, this month's wine and weird topics, and don't worry, Da Spooky Crew, I've not forgotten you either. We'll be talking about the JFK conspiracies this month, so buckle up. While you're waiting for next week's episode to drop, you can find Dark as Hell on Instagram at Dark as Hell Podcast, which is all one word, and on Twitter at Dark as Hell Pod, again, all one word. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can email your comments or hashtag questions of your own over to me at darkashellpodcast at gmail.com, or you can head on over to darkashellpodcast.com. Thanks again for listening. I'll catch you back here next week, ready to get dark as hell all over again.